0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Steve Stewart. You can make a case that all struggle is local. No matter the issue, no matter the strategy, no matter how many other people and places and groups are also involved, the actual doing of it always comes down to you and those you are immediately with, in whatever circumstances you find yourselves, making choices and taking action. Still, while some struggles are only local, most are either already broader in scope or could be if people had the opportunity and will to come together across difference and distance to do the work of making common cause. Take, for example, the education sector. No matter what jurisdiction you live in, in the last 20 years your school system has no doubt faced some, or even all, of the following. Cuts at least partial privatization, whether that is direct or through the reallocation of resources away from the public system and towards non-public alternatives in less visible ways, rhetorical attacks on teachers, legal attacks on teachers' collective bargaining rights, the imposition of standardized testing and other pedagogically dubious corporate-backed changes that get touted as reforms, and various other manifestations of the cut, privatized, deregulate agenda captured by the term neoliberalism. At various times and in various places, teachers, parents, and students have all acted to oppose this agenda. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for these groups to be divided, often because of deliberate efforts to keep them apart by those trying to impose this agenda, but sometimes they succeed in working together and forging a common resistance. Steve Stewart, who is based in Vancouver, is the Technical Secretary of the Initiative for Democratic Education in the Americas or IDEA Network. This group emerged in the late 1990s out of precisely this recognition of common threats to public education spanning not one or two jurisdictions, but all of North, Central, and South America the network brings together organizations from across the hemisphere that share a commitment to protecting and improving public education, particularly teachers' organizations and students' organizations, and it also encompasses a network of education researchers and a network of indigenous educators. In the moment of its founding, the main threat to public education in this hemisphere took the form of negotiations to create a free-trade area of the Americas that would have, among other things, imposed neoliberal reforms on education systems from Canada to Chile. In those years, mobilizing against the FTAA, both directly and at various international gatherings, formed the center of the network's work. Since the defeat of that agreement, attacks on public education have not abated, but they have become less centralized, so the IDEA Network has focused on research, on sharing resources and strategies among members for defending public education in their respective contexts, and on mobilizing solidarity actions when member organizations are facing repression or crisis. In the Canadian context, a number of teachers unions have been involved at various points, and occasionally student groups, But the main force behind it in this country has been the British Columbia Teachers' Federation, an organization with a long and remarkable history of international solidarity work. Stuart talks with me about the ongoing, hemisphere-wide threats to public education and about the work of the Idea Network to support struggles to defend it in Canada and across the Americas. We spoke by Skype from Vancouver.
1: My name is Steve Stewart. I'm the Technical Secretary of the Initiative for Democratic Education in the Americas. It's known by its acronym as IDEA. And IDEA is a broad network of teacher, student, community, and research organizations that work to defend and enhance public education in the Americas. My work with IDEA is a part-time job. I also work with a Vancouver-based NGO called co Development Canada, which serves to link Canadian labor and social organizations with counterparts in Latin America. I was a teacher and then moved to Central America and Mexico and worked as a journalist for five years there. When I returned, at the time, the free trade area of the Americas negotiations had been announced in '98, and Co-Development Canada, in conjunction with the BC Teachers Federation, thought it would be a good idea to bring together educators and students from different parts of the Americas to look at what impact the FTAA would have on public education in their countries. So I was originally hired for a six-month contract to organize a meeting and a conference based on that theme. But out of the conference, people found that there was so much similarity in the kinds of threats that were being posed to public education and to teacher autonomy and working conditions that they decided to create a permanent organization. I've been there ever since.
0: Go into a little bit more detail about the concerns that the BC Teachers Federation and the rest had that led to those initial steps.
1: Well, it was a combination of two things. One was the role of free trade agreements in undermining public education. I think that was one of the strongest concerns in that there had been a number of studies by industry about the great economic opportunities that existed in education. And there was a growing pressure towards contracting and subcontracting of educational services. And that was seen as a package with the push towards standardized evaluation you could see how countries could lose their educational sovereignty because if running of standardized tests were privatized, then the people that stand to benefit most from that were the large education corporations such as Pearson who could invest in the front end and in the technology that would then enable them to resell the packages to many different countries. And accompanying this push for standardized education is a move to sort of denationalize the content of the curricula so that products could be reproduced, and you sell not only the testing, but also the texts and supporting materials that would prepare students for the tests. So that was the major concern. The other was that in the 1998 Summit of the Americas of the Heads of State in Chile, they announced that they would be focusing on education as the key to development. And again, the feeling was that if the Heads of State are consulting with the Heads of Industry about that, that the people from the education community throughout the Americas should also be discussing what these impacts have and and develop counter-proposals or policies.
0: Tell me more about the founding meeting.
1: It took place in September 1999 in Quito, Ecuador. There were some 56 organizations from about 25 countries ranging from Argentina to Canada to the Caribbean involved Probably two-thirds of the delegates were teachers, but there are quite a number of representatives from student organizations, both national ones and from the Latin American Caribbean Students Organization, which is a federation of most of the student organizations in Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as representatives from indigenous groups that work on education and, and women's organizations. What was, I think, startling for people when they began to share, like it was sort of combination of plenaries and theme-based smaller workshops, was how similar the proposals that were being peddled in each country were. And the analysis around that was that much of these policies are not national policies, but rather deputy ministers of education get invited to seminars by the World Bank and other international bodies where these packages are promoted, and then they come back to promote them in their own countries. So out of that, because of that impact, the idea was that we need to work together on a continental basis. I should mention also that prior to the conference in Quito, there was a series of regional conferences so that when people came to the continental conference, the ideas and the concepts had already been discussed to a certain extent. Basically, What was created following that was an international coordinating committee with representation from different regions and different sectors. So you had a representative from the Southern Cone, from the Andean region, from Central America, from Mexico, and from Canada. At that time, the U.S. was not participating, and from the Caribbean. And so where regional organizations existed, such as the Caribbean Union of Teachers in the Caribbean and the Federation of Central American Teachers in Central America, they nominated representatives to the steering committee. In the regions where those didn't exist, then an individual national union took on the representation with the commitment to share that information with other organizations in the region. But primarily that representation is by teachers' unions. So in order to ensure broader representation, sectoral representation was also created So the president of the Latin American Caribbean Students Organization sits on the International Coordinating Committee, as does a representative of the Indigenous Educators Network. And there used to be within IDEA a Women Educators Network, so they had a representative, but that is no longer active. But there is also a representative of academics or of education researchers that participates. Also, the work has kind of evolved over the years Initially, there was quite a bit of funding available for the work, and so it was possible to be quite active, and we had a sort of common cause, which was joining with other organizations to stop the free trade area of the Americas and to raise awareness of its impact on educational sovereignty. So the coordinating committee at that time would meet usually about twice a year. We'd coordinate annual mobilizations, ensure that we had seminars and activities related to the education sector at most of the sort of international gatherings like the People's Summits and the World Social Forums. However, after the FTA was defeated in, if I remember rightly, 2005 in Mar de Plata, it became harder to have that common mobilization because the... Free trade agreements that were being pursued were more bilateral, and there was also less funding available for us. And so the work of IDEA now has tended to be more research-oriented, although we do still coordinate some mobilizations. There are more mutual solidarity mobilizations, for example. The government of Ecuador announced the decertification of the National Teachers Union there and is planning on seizing its offices and we have been coordinating mobilizations in, in many countries, including Canada, in support of the Ecuadorian teachers. So it's more that kind of urgent action response rather than concentrated continental campaigns. But we try and identify areas of common concern, such as standardized testing, such as erosion of pensions and Social Security, such as issues around the ecological crisis and teaching in education, teaching gender equity issues and we put together continental seminars where different organizations that participate in IDEA come and share their experiences working in those themes.
0: What Canadian organizations are or have been involved in the IDEA Network?
1: We should recognize that a vast amount of the financial support for IDEA Network comes from the BC Teachers Federation since the beginning, and it has been difficult to get stable funding from other organizations in that way, most of the participation by other Canadian or U.S. organizations has been attending events, sometimes providing some financial support for the publication of a magazine or a report or covering the cost of some of the Latin American delegates to participate. The most active other organizations with the IDEA Network have been the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation and the Central des Syndicats du Québec. There has been occasional participation also by the Canadian Federation of Students, but it's been fairly intermittent.
0: Tell me more about the research component of the Idea Network's work in recent years.
1: Much of the research generated around issues of education and pedagogy was being generated by neoliberal think tanks or the World Bank. Often, as well, education policies were developed in the U.S. and then exported to other countries through USAID and other organizations like the Partnership for Education Reform in the Americas. And we felt it was important that educators in particular had the opportunity to do more than just say no to these measures, to provide counter proposals that were based on solid research. And so we created the IDEA Research Network based partly on the concept, too, that those that know best what works in classrooms in specific countries are the classroom teachers. So, it does involve university academics and researchers working directly for teacher and student organizations, but it also involves a lot of classroom teachers carrying out action research in the classroom. And there's two purposes for this. One is to analyze what are the – uh like generally the neoliberal policies that threaten public education come through in one specific place and then spread to others. As I said earlier, often they're generated within the United States with no child left behind, for example, and similar policies. But also quite often specific countries are used as kind of experimental laboratories. In the 70s and 80s, it was Chile – More recently has been Mexico where there's been a second wave of neoliberal reforms in education that the government has so far unsuccessfully been trying to push through. But we recognize that if they are successful there, they are then tried in different ways in other countries. So understanding the arguments that are used to sell those before they're imposed in your own country can be very useful to organizations that are fighting to strengthen public education. But also there's a recognition that one of the reasons that In many countries, they've been able to advance with these policies, particularly the issues such as school vouchers and charter schools that seek to move the middle class away from the public education, is that many public education systems in the Americas are primarily used to train workers to the most minimal level so that they can carry out the manual labor that governments feel are necessary. And so part of the work is also sharing experiences of alternative education, liberatory education, so that education organizations at the national level can provide counter-proposals that can get the public much more excited about public education and see its value beyond the simple literacy training.
0: And in terms of the Idea Network's solidarity mobilizations, what are some other situations in which that has occurred? And What does it look like on the ground in different countries?
1: It's often expressed differently in different countries and depending on the situation. For example, the current situation in Ecuador, in the case of Canada, we're aware how difficult it is to mobilize teachers, particularly in August. So the campaign has taken the form of a urgent action blitz where people can go on to the idea website and send letters to the Ecuadorian ambassador and the Ecuadorian government. So in Canada, knowing how hard it is to get people on the ground, we focus more on that. Similarly, when Enrique Peña Nieto came to Canada in June, we did a similar campaign to urge Trudeau as a teacher to denounce the violence that was taking place against teachers as they were meeting. And while the Canadian media steadfastly ignored the protests that were taking place during Peña Nietzsche's visit, we did manage to get Trudeau to make at least a soft statement about the violence against the teachers that was picked up quite broadly by the Mexican media. So those are some of the things we do in Canada, but in countries where there's more of a tradition of mobilizations, including the United States, actually, as there are now some organizations in the United States that belong to the IDEA network, there's been more mobilizations in front of consulates. Delegations sent to the embassies, actions such as that. And it's not just the North supporting those facing threats in the South. In 2005, for example, when the BC Teachers Federation went on what was considered an illegal strike and the government intervened with all their communications, social communications, the Mexican teachers set up a mirror website that BC teachers could go to in Mexico to get information about what was going on. As well as in about a dozen countries, delegations from idea organizations went to Canadian embassies urging them to comply with international labor organization regulations. So generally it takes that kind of form where each country expresses the support as best suits their traditions, which generally are in the form of letter campaigns and delegations or demonstrations at the embassies of the offending countries. We have also sometimes been able to channel contributions from different organizations to support legal costs and things when leaders of IDEA organizations are jailed.
0: What is the significance of the emphasis on public education in the work of the IDEA Network?
1: It stems largely from the concept that, aside from the family and arguably now the media, Public education is the fundamental tool of social reproduction in society. And so apart from the economics of it, the fact that access to equal education is a fundamental aspect of democratic values, that if access to education is unequal, then you cement in inequalities in society. But the reproductive role of education means that much of the ideological war of ideas, as Fidel Castro calls it, must go on within the school systems. And this is something that neoliberal crafters of education policy are very aware of. And it's not just for economic reasons or to make things cheaper or more efficient or even to transfer the wealth upwards, that they design these new neoliberal ways of education it's also to instill those values of individualism, competition, the concept of a meritocracy that you move up because you do well on the tests and the instilling of teachers competing with teachers, schools competing with schools, students competing with students, the concept of the principal of a school as a manager, the teachers as the factory workers and the students as the products. That's all an ideological formation. So At the same time, teachers as the reproducers of this can choose to reproduce those values of separation and inequality and exclusion in society, or they can work towards creating systems that promote active and committed and solidarity-oriented citizens. So one aspect, of course, is the economic side. In Canada and everywhere else, we're constantly battling cutbacks to education. It's a significant crisis here in British Columbia, in particular in Vancouver, where we're faced in the coming year with the closure of a significant number of public schools, while we're seeing growing subsidies for private schools, including those of the most wealthy elites, such as the child of the premier. So the economics is one side of it, but packaged within that is the ideological aspect of what kind of society do we want to build. And a fundamental tool for creating a new society is within the public education system.
0: So how would you characterize the state of current threats to public education in the Americas? And how does that look different in different parts of the hemisphere?
1: I think the primary threats have to do with the shifting of funding for education from public to private. And that's manifested differently in different places, for example, as I mentioned, Here in British Columbia takes a form of reduced funding or offloading of costs onto local school boards in the public sector while increasing significantly over the last 20 years subsidies to the private schools. In Latin America, it takes different forms. In some countries, such as Chile, it has followed the US model of giving families vouchers that enable them to choose, you know, you can use this voucher for uh, elite private school if I pay a bunch more. I can use it to go to the underfunded municipal school and pay nothing more, or I can use it pay a little bit more and go to a different private school. So that voucher system, charter schools are making inroads primarily in Latin America. They haven't been very significant. In Canada, in the U.S., they've become quite widespread, although it seems that they're beginning to decline now because of the number of crises they've faced. So one aspect is that. The second is an attempt to deprofessionalize the teacher's profession. To devalue pedagogical skills and focus on content oriented activities that can be easily measured by an economist stick. So there's a real push to turn the teachers into technicians, I guess you would say. In the United States, in some places, it means if you're in the same grade, everyone has to be on the same page of the same text on the same day. And they send supervisors to come around and check to make sure teachers are on the same page of the same text on the same day, regardless of the class composition. We recently visited some of the new schools in Ecuador where they've introduced great new technology. Unfortunately, it's technology that reproduces that so that instead of being on the same page of the same text, they're on the same lesson plan coming from the ministry's website at the same time. So that deprofessionalization of teaching is a common threat. And combined with that, a sort of effort to crush the teachers' unions and to discredit the teachers' unions Throughout the Americas, we hear similar stories that, you know, 20, 25 years ago, teachers were seen with a fair bit of respect, but that over the past 25, 30 years, there's been constant campaigns against teachers and discrediting of teachers. So they're seen as people that are always going on strike, which they do actually quite a bit in Latin America because of these threats. So, So discrediting of teachers as professionals, offensive against the teachers' organizations, and a shift in subsidies and support from the public system to private, I would say, are the chief issues. The other issue is what I mentioned earlier, the role of transnational corporations in the administering of evaluation technology and its supporting materials. You see that largely in countries such as Argentina and, to a lesser extent, Mexico, the countries that have a little bit more funds to spend on education, and, of course, in the U.S., Where they contract out the testing to these corporations, largely Pearson Corporation from Britain, and then they also contract the textbooks that are produced by those companies.
0: So what are some of the significant things coming up for the IDEA Network? Currently
1: the only major thing planned is a conference in Mexico that takes place, or it's a meeting actually, the coordinating committee and the research network that takes place in Mexico City in mid-November. But as we often do, we have coincided this event with a continental conference of a network of researchers that research teachers' work. And so we'll be participating in that conference as well. And at that meeting, setting up plans for the next two years of activities of the IDEA Network. I suspect that out of that, there will be plans for in the spring, a continental seminar on teacher evaluation. Because in country after country, we're seeing that as being one of the chief sources of conflict taking place at the moment. I would say that our ability to do mass mobilizations and things like that has declined. But where I see the richness of idea is serving a common space of sharing both solidarity, but also of learning from one another. For example, we find that the increased interchanges between BC teachers and Latin American counterparts has led to a much greater interest in the teachers' unions there in participating in pedagogical and professional issues that they used to think was just the ambit of the ministry. And that in turn has served to help rebuild some of the credibility of the teachers' organizations because parents, particularly when they're interacting with parents and developing these, they're seeing them as being concerned with increasing the quality of education in the public system rather than just sort of saying no to changes, and that's weakened the neoliberal argument that their changes are aimed to make education better. So that's been an important aspect. But at the same time, teachers in the U.S. and Canada have learned a lot in terms of sort of street tactics, I might say, from their Latin American counterparts, and particularly the Mexicans. Within the IDENT network, there's a North American component that's called the Tri-National Coalition to Defend Public Education. And they have engaged in a lot of interchange between the Mexicans, the more, I would almost say, rebel locals in the United States, such as Chicago, Los Angeles, and the Canadian federations, in such a way that they've adopted some of the tactics that they've learned from Mexican teachers and have been less afraid to use creative methods during their protests and labor actions. So I find the richest part of IDEA really is that interchange that often happens in the hallways or following the formal workshops or seminars.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Steve Stewart of the IDEA Network, which stands for the Initiative for Democratic Education in the Americas. To learn more about their work, go to idea-network.ca. That's idea-network.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.